I have a question for you. What do you know about stem cells? What if you could activate your own stem cells naturally? Are you suffering from any signs of aging? Gray hair, saggy skin, aches and pains throughout your body, not sleeping through the night? I have found something that has helped to redefine my aging, that has helped to give me more energy. I'm sleeping better at night. My stamina is increased. And any pain and tension and stress, inflammation, gone. Have you heard about the new stem cell activation technology? What if you could activate your own stem cells for less than a cup of coffee a day? I've been using stem cell activating patches for over 13 years. They have been life-changing for me. Head over to jenniferpilates.com, click on the X39 stem cell activation patch, and let's continue this conversation and get you to the healthiest you you've ever been. Welcome to Empowered Within, a soul-quenching, transformational podcast that will set your soul on fire through candid and inspiring conversations. Leading experts, celebrities, healers, and I share our journeys of how we've overcome challenges to living an empowered life from within. I'm your host, Jennifer Pilates. Welcome to another episode of Empowered Within. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am honored to have with us the amazing Lodro Rinsler, a meditation teacher and award-winning author of seven books and the co-founder of the Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. His books, Walk Like a Buddha and The Buddha Walks Into the Office, have both received independent publisher awards. Lodro has taught meditation for 19 years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and travels frequently for his books, having spoken across the world at conferences, universities, and businesses as diverse as Google, Harvard University, and the White House. Named one of 50 innovators shaping the future of wellness by Sonoma, Rinsler's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Good Morning America, CBS and NBC. Welcome to the show, Lodro. I'm so honored to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate being here with you. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So let's talk about where did your journey begin that led you where you are today, being a successful meditation teacher, an award-winning author, spreader of the light to the world. How did it all begin? (laughs) So my parents actually started meditating when they were in their 20s and 30s. So by the time that I came around as a child, uh, it was just in the household. I mean, it's so bizarre because I know many of us were raised with different traditions and some of us really stayed connected to those traditions. Some of us went and found other traditions. But for me, it was a bit of an oddity in that I was started meditating when I was about six years old. And I ended up starting to pursue weekend meditation retreats and things like that at 11, 13, and so on, and was always sort of the youngest person in the room, but also somehow didn't think that was a weird thing. Only in retrospect, I'm like, God, that's so bizarre that I was really meditating from such a young age. And at the same time, how lucky am I that I began working with my mind at such a young age? And you know, as I continued to grow up and continue to grow up, I suppose, um, that I have these tools to help me navigate all of that. So I feel very fortunate that I, I started at that point. And right before I went to university, my parents showed me a program that I signed on to where you go away for a period of time over a summer and you take on a temporary monastic life. So you shave your head and you take the monastic robes and you take the precepts and all of the things that really sort of throw you in the deep end of the Buddhist path. And I emerged from that program really not interested whatsoever in becoming a monastic, but deeply transformed in terms of my own practice and realizing, oh, this is no longer the thing that my family does. They had never done such a thing. This is now something that I do. And I have my own ways of formulating my own spiritual journey. So from there, I went to university and started a little meditation group. And I actually did not realize that people showing up didn't already know how to meditate. I just assumed everyone did because that's how I grew up and how naive was I at 18. So I invited teachers and those teachers got bored of coming and basically were like, you've done all the prerequisites for teacher training. You go do it. So I went and did my first of many teacher trainings to learn how to give mindfulness instruction, mindfulness of the breath. 
and have been teaching now for 20 years. So that was 18. I'm 38 now and have been uh, in various capacities offering meditation during that time, including starting a network of meditation studios in New York City known as Mindful, including having written, as you said, a handful of books on the topic, the most recent being Take Back Your Mind, which is Buddhist advice for our anxious times. And um, having started my own online meditation community as well, which is a really lovely group of people from around the world who get together every week to meditate and study Buddhism. That's amazing. Now, are you offering retreats where you're currently living? I know we talked about you're in upstate New York. Are you offering that so people can actually come and experience you in person? Yeah, it's a great question. We are. Um, we <laughs> just had our first one last month and it was lovely. And uh, we're very lucky that we have a small piece of land that we were able to throw up some tents and we worked with Walden cushions who were very generous in bringing us cushions and we set it all up. And it was like this little, our house had been transformed into a little retreat center. So we're doing those at this point, just twice a year. And we'll probably maybe in the coming year, do three or four of them, but they're always very small and intimate at this stage because we really just want to be able to work with people in as unique a way as possible, actually meeting them where they are. I, I led a lot of retreats that have 75, 100 people, which is awesome and wonderful. And at the same time, um, I don't get to know any of them. And it's a bit heartbreaking. So I, I think the current model that my wife and I are working from is really to work with people in as hands-on a way as possible. I think that's beautiful. I agree with you. I, I work so much better in a smaller capacity group than I do in a larger group. You tend to pick up everyone else's energy and then it's harder to ground into your own, I find. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. It does feel like, oh, within a smaller group, not only is there a stronger sense of community, which I feel like is one of the primary things I'm sure you found as well, is something that people feel like is lacking in their life. But there's also that sense of, oh, there's someone, a teacher and other individuals who really care about me. One hundred percent. I know that that's come up a lot for me in the last few years, missing that sense of community. Like growing up, it was very different for you and I than it is for children today. And we had that then and on a whole different level. And now I'm really happy to hear that you're doing this with the smaller retreats. It's a wonderful way to bring back. And I know that there's so many people yearning for that right now. Yeah, extremely well put. You know, I think this is something that we found maybe in the midst of the pandemic that some of the ways that we unintentionally fell into community, whether that was our office community or uh, the community that just sort of had sprouted up around the gym or the fitness studio that we went to or whatever it is, it all of a sudden wasn't there. And so many of us felt bereft of community. And I think that's such a wonderful gift that we're able to offer to people is that sense of bringing together people within a culture of kindness and a culture of mutual respect that can include so many diverse outlooks and individuals, but it's really formulating around the idea of like, we all have this particular goal, whether this physical fitness, mental wellness, whatever it might be that we're supporting one another along the way, because I think it's the difference for many of the work that both of us do between running 10 miles out in the street and getting exhausted and stopping at points and all versus running in a marathon or a half marathon and having a big group of people. And there's some energy to it. And there's real support of just, even though you may not even be talking to anyone, you're in this energetic flow of we're all here together. And I I think the more that uh, we're able to create communities like that, the better. I agree with you. It's that electromagnetic field that we all give out from our heart that really makes a difference in everything that we do. We've lost a bit of that and it's hard to rebuild and restructure and refine that. And what you're doing sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you saying that. It's a really interesting time for us to be exploring these things. It is. I know you and I have a lot of the same beliefs and no coincidence that you had just moved up to New York State. It's so beautiful in New York State. And then to have this opportunity, a blessing in a you know, disguise of a situation, that's wonderful for you to be able to do that. Along your journey, who have been some of your biggest inspirations? Great question. Thank you for asking it. You know, it's been interesting because I coming out of this moment that I was talking to you about before, where it was no longer sort of like my family's thing and it became my thing. It was a moment of saying, well, who do I really admire and respect? And some missteps along the way, and then finding some teachers that I find to be extremely genuine 
And these days, it's really, I used to think, oh, I've only got to study within this one lineage of Buddhism. And I know a lot of people out there who get going with meditation, they're like, I need to pick a lane, which can be helpful. But I often think about it more as like majoring in college, like you major in something, but then you can minor in something else and you can take classes and other things. So I think once you have a sense of like the types of teachers that you want to work with, you can sort of branch out from there and say, where am I, uh, where would I like to continue my education outside of this? So for me personally, to answer your question more directly. I've been deeply inspired by individuals who are Westerners like Pema Chodron, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is a friend and mentor. And then more formally, I study with a teacher known as Keelung Rinpoche, who you know, is the current incarnation of a particular line of Tibetan Buddhist teachers that have been around for centuries. The thing that I admire about him is the deep kindness that he shows. Just like the deep... that same sense of like the personal care that we were talking about before, that's something I've learned from him. And, you know, yes, there's wonderful teachings he offers, but like, it's the presence of this human being that inspires me. It's the present. When I sit down with someone like Sharon Salzberg, it's the complete non-judgmental attitude and openness to me as a person that inspires me and makes me say, Oh, I want to emulate that. That's something I want to work further on. Another teacher that I've recently started studying under is Dr. Larry Ward, who is a wonderful teacher enough of his own right, but, as an African-American man who grew up in particular circumstances to find so much joy. He has so many practices around finding joy in the midst of difficulty. And I'm really deeply inspired of that because we are all at this point living through extremely difficult times. Um, But his unique uh, exacerbated form of this, and also the way that he has developed practices of going out and just, there's a giant tree out my window here and putting his hand on a tree every day and actually just being like the earthiness of it. And this is not a formal Buddhist practice that has been around for thousands of years. This is his practice of here's a way that I go out and find joy to find the little moments in our life that we can actually cultivate enjoyment of the present moment. And I feel deeply inspired by that. So it's for me why I currently study with this teacher, Keelung Rinpoche, and that he helps guide my own teaching and my own practice there's all these other individuals. I say, Ooh, I, there's something here in your being that I emulate that I would like to cultivate myself. I love that you're so diverse and expressing that. And I know that a lot of people probably aren't even aware that there's so many different types of Buddhism and all of this that you can bring together and make your own foundation and make it your own program. Doesn't have to be so cookie cutter. I think that's so important for everyone to know and and to really understand that there's so many different varieties out there and flavors and and you should want to embrace it all. Yeah, extremely well put. You know, I, I think that's that's right. It's not like we have to fill out a form at some point and say, I am this type of Buddhist or I am this type of spiritual practitioner. So many of the teachers and colleagues I admire the most, you know, yes, they teach Buddhism and they also have a shamanistic teacher and they also have other things that augment the things that they've already know to be true within Buddhism. And they're, I think something shy of that is almost fear-based. It's like, well, if I learn other things, is that going to make me doubt my path? No, I think if you are solid in your path and your understanding of reality as is, everything that can help you wake up to that is going to be beneficial, not detract. So anyway, I I think it's really an interesting time that we're living in because it used to be, as you said, there's so many forms of Buddhism. It used to be that if I wanted to study Japanese Zen, I would have to go fly to Japan. And if I wanted to study Tibetan Buddhism, I would have to get on a plane and go to Tibet. And there's so many versions of that. And here, I mean, I used to make the example that, you know, New York City, Chelsea, there's sort of called the Dharma district, that there's, you know, five meditation Buddhist centers within a couple of blocks of each other. And now in our our, uh, COVID, post-COVID world, we could do this all online. So it's like, it's all at our fingertips. What a time we live in that we could explore these different traditions, these different modalities. And this is all, of course, separate from, sorry that I'm rambling here, but it's all separate from like these are all time-tested techniques that have been around for thousands of years. That's different than someone saying, you know, I just tried this thing where I stand on one foot and my aura shoots out of my forehead. It, it worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Like we also see that. And that's, that's a little different than what I'm talking about. Exactly. A little deeper. And then that kind of brings me to a question that I had for you. And actually be prior to us 
coming on usually midday. I have a, a meditation practice in the morning and midday and it worked out and I thought, oh, I was laying there. And in the beginning I go, oh, this is so perfect right before, you know? And so I have these questions for you as far as meditation. And for some it is sitting, for some it is laying, for some it is going out for a walk. I know in one of your books, uh, you talk about a meditation and it is, it's walking in a circle and, and different things that you're doing with your hands. Is there a particular meditation that is your go-to that you feel truly works? Or do you also use a range like walking outside and receiving messages? Do you feel that's a form of meditation as well? I have a question for you. What do you know about stem cells? What if you could activate your own stem cells naturally? Are you suffering from any signs of aging? I finally found something that helps me, giving me more energy. I'm able to sleep through the night, no longer having any SI issues or pains or inflammation. Have you heard about the new stem cell activation technology? What if you could activate your own stem cells for less than a cup of coffee a day? I've been using stem cell activating patches for over 13 years. They have been life-changing for me. Head over to jenniferpilates.com and click on the link for stem cell activation patches to learn more. Again, head over to jenniferpilates.com so that you can learn more about the new stem cell activation patches to become a better, healthier, more amazing you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great question. And I'm going to be a bit traditionalist here in that one of my favorite definitions of meditation comes from my friend Susan Piver in her book, Start Here Now, where she says, meditation is substituting your discursive mind for another object of attention. Meaning instead of just sort of wondering about saying, you know, what thoughts are coming to me to actually say, I'm going to place my attention repeatedly on a thing. And when thoughts come up and try and pull me out of this present moment, I'm going to return to the present moment. And of course, within that, there's so much, such a range of things that people could meditate on. That being said, to actually answer your question, the one practice I often start people with and that I myself practiced, you know, nonstop without any additional practices for over a decade is known as shamatha or calm abiding or peaceful abiding meditation. And it is more commonly referred to here in the West as mindfulness of the breath practice, just being with the body breathing not changing the breath, not doing anything. And this is, is so simple and so complex at the same time. It's simple in that all we have to do is take an uplifted and relaxed posture, be with the body breathing. And when we get distracted by those discursive thoughts, acknowledge them and come back. It's complicated because we are not accustomed to being simple. We are not accustomed to simply being with ourselves. So we say, well, maybe I should do more. Maybe I should control the breath. Maybe I should be, breathe in deeper or breathe out deeper. No, we're just relaxing with the natural flow. The nice thing about being with the body breathing is that it's already happening. Even as you're sitting here and I'm sitting here and whoever's listening to this is sitting there, they're breathing, we're breathing. It's just happening. So all we have to do is pay attention to something that's already occurring. We have a tendency in our life to always want to plan, to fix, to change, to want to strategize and leave the present moment. So we have that same impulse might arise when we start meditating this impulse to want to fix or change or do a different technique but the simplicity of this practice really cuts through all of that um, habitual way of doing things that we can just keep acknowledging oh i drifted off i come back i drifted off i come back and thus we train our mind to become more present so that when we leave the practice we are actually able to enter the rest of our day and learn to be present with whoever's right in front of us the conversation that we're having our food and actually tasting the food at lunch, you know, taking a walk and actually feeling the sun in our skin. These are very, again, simple joys, as you said before, but because we've trained the mind to be present and open to them, we are more receptive. It's so true. In reading a, a few of your books, this has come up quite a bit. You write, often, I'm a mess and also okay. Can you share what that means to you? I really resonate with that. And I'm sure so many of our listeners do. Yeah, it reminds me of this story of the Zen master Suzuki Roshi, who came into giving a talk back in, I want to say in the 60s, to his students. And he looked out at them and he said, all of you are perfect just as you are, and you could use a little improvement. And this mentality between both of these statements 
is that according to the Buddhist tradition, we are already whole, complete good as is. This is extremely good news for many of us. We're not broken. We think we're broken. That's something that society has told us, that we always need to do more, we need to get more, we need to produce more, and then we'll be happy. And I think for many people who might be listening to this, they might be burnt out on that idea of like, well, when I get dot, 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 I'll be happy. That new job, that spouse, that house, that whatever it is, we could spend all of our life pursuing those things. And it goes one of two ways. We either get the thing and then we say, oh, is this really the spouse I want? Should I have a second house? Should I, you know, we start to look for other things, but we don't. And we just feel like something must be wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm, I'm not good enough. So the Buddhist notion is 180 degrees different from this, which it says, actually, we're whole complete good as is. We possess a basic goodness that we are already awake that we have everything we need within us to actually be whole and open to reality as it is, we don't need to be additive in that way. So the idea of us being perfect just as we are, or the idea of me saying I'm okay and I'm basically a mess, is that, yeah, that is the core of who we are. And a lot of us act out of our own confusion sometimes. You know, it's just a natural thing that develops. We don't feel in touch with that wholeness or that basic goodness. And as a result of not being in touch with that, we say something stupid, we act out, we act from selfish desires. And this is just a part of being human. I think it's a really interesting time we live in because there's this sense of like, could we make mistakes and then also learn from those mistakes? And could that actually advance us down the spiritual path? And I actually, I might even have said in in that same intro to a book that like, these are the two ways that I've learned. One is that I actually study at the feet of great teachers. I'm like, oh yeah, this is a really helpful thing. And I actually incorporated and was able to live in line with that. Or I just made a mistake and I said, that didn't work. <laughs> and now I need to actually learn from that and do better. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something that has to, you know, in our current age and day, it's, it's not pretty to talk about our mistakes, but like we do need to actually be vulnerable enough to say, yeah, I effed up. And I learned from it and I am not going to keep repeating that. And I can actually offer myself forgiveness and I can move into the rest of my life reaffirming that I don't want to keep going in that same direction. I agree with you. I think this year I even changed instead of like, oh, I failed at that. You know, that it's such a negative connotation with it. It's like, oh no, I'm learning forward today. I really Mm, learned from that. You know, you're learning forward because you've learned from it. It's not, you know, again, loving bringing it back to you is bringing it back to self, that meditation, bringing it back inside. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, if we actually were in touch with the sense of, I'm using a particularly Buddhist term, basic goodness, this fundamental, primordial, inherent, innate goodness that we have inside of us, it would just radically transform our relationship, not just to ourselves, but to the world around us. It's not just me, Lodro, that has it. It's not just you. It's like all beings. So when someone cuts me off in traffic, could I actually say they're basically good? This is who they fundamentally are. And they're acting in an impatient way. And that's causing harm. You know, like it's just a fundamental mm-hmm. shift then. This person's an a-hole and they're bad and they're wrong and they're a villain. Right. It's, it's really dramatically different. So I think to actually work with our own relationship to basic goodness and then also to... Um, begin to recognize the basic goodness of those around us can be quite profound. I agree. And it's something we, again, as a world need right now to look at the positive versus just going to the dramatic of everything that's going on and going, well, wait, what's the blessing? You're in New York state. Now you offer intimate retreats. You couldn't have done that in New York city. You know, there's, there's so many good things coming out of dark times, I think is the best way to describe it. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. I was having a conversation earlier today with that in mind, where there were it was this particular focus group that was asking me questions around so the good, bad, and the ugly of the pandemic and mental health and, and wellness. And in reflecting on it, most of the meditation students I work with, their primary fear is that they are not going to be able to continue with some of the things that they actually really benefited from in the midst of the pandemic. Like, for example, setting really good boundaries around work and life. Mm-hmm. or, um, you know, not drinking so much or <laughs> like valuing time on the meditation cushion or the yoga mat instead of feeling like they always had to be out. You know, there's things like that, that it's just around self-care and, and self-appreciation or acceptance that the great fear is like, this might go out the window now that things are speeding up again. 
And the conversation I end up having over and over again, I imagine you might be having similar conversations is who gets to determine that? Well, it's me. I determine whether I continue with these boundaries. I can determine whether I continue to prioritize my self-care. There's no one that gets to determine that. It's just because things are speeding up and opening up and things like that does not mean that we necessarily have to return to the way things were before. Mm-hmm. In an odd sense, it's been a phenomenal reboot to take us back to simpler times and to decipher what out of that do you feel great with and resonates with you and makes you feel good versus where you were in your life, what didn't work. And and I truly hope, and I feel like you're saying like the majority of people that I've spoken with as well, want to keep life simple, want to go for a walk, want to have dinner with their families, want to have a communication, want to turn the phones off and put them down and have no problem doing that. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And I think that learning that has occurred is really wonderful. And it's, <laughs> I forget which pill is which in the matrix, but it's like, you know, you either take the red pill or the blue pill, mm-hmm. but then when you take the blue pill. You can't not, you can't go back to the way things were before. And while there's been incredible horror and devastation that has arisen out of this pandemic, there's also a lot of taking of the blue pill where it's like, well, I actually now understand certain things I didn't understand before. And that learning doesn't go away. I, I carry that into this new world. I agree with you. Once, once the lights go on, you can't not see what you're seeing. Yeah. So we often hear, and you've spoken of it a little bit here on the show, the words mindfulness and meditation. Can you explain the difference? Because I think sometimes they get intertwined in the way in which society has glamorized certain things and they can actually be rather different. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So let's start with meditation. Meditation, as I mentioned before, could be us substituting our discursive thinking for an object of our attention, a mantra, the breath, sound. Great. You know, it's that repeated placement on the thing. But within meditation, there's this whole wide world of different types. Often in the West, we talk about Meditation either coming from the Buddhist tradition or the Vedic tradition, the Vedic tradition having been around for thousands of years as well, which is often a mantra-based approach to meditation. You know, we might, for example, be familiar and know a lot of people when I'm at a party and people find out that I'm a meditation teacher, like, oh, what do you do? I do transcendental meditation. It's it's such a ubiquitous type that I feel like I've had this conversation 12,000 times. So transcendental meditation, we're doing this mantra until we transcend the mantra. We enter a state of relaxation. That makes sense. That's my limited understanding, not being a transcendental meditation teacher myself, but being from the Buddhist tradition. In Buddhism, there's many different techniques, such as mindfulness, but also loving kindness, tonglen, and other practices that are heart opening and bring us into the present moment. Mindfulness as a skill set that can be developed, can be developed in a form of meditation or can be something that we apply to our everyday life. So a classic definition of mindfulness would be being present to what is currently occurring without judgment. Those last two words are actually really crucial because a lot of times we're in the moment and we're also subtly judging it. So I think many of us, particularly as we get going in meditation, end up judging ourselves quite harshly. I should be better at this. I should be with the breath. Why am I thinking so much? We have to suspend all of that and treat ourselves without that sense of self-aggression and judgment. Anyway, uh, I digress. The element of mindfulness is that we are present to what's currently occurring without judgment. We are present in the mindfulness meditation with the breath, for example, and we're just being with the body breathing. And then that allows us then, the more we cultivate that skill set, to be present without judgment in the rest of our life. So when I drink a glass of water, I could just be there with the glass of water. When I'm in a conversation, I could just be there in the conversation. This is the act of mindfulness, but it's really well refined in the act of mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. No, it totally makes sense because I'm thinking, okay, these are, there are two things totally that need to be worked on, but then can come together and really bring a beautiful new world to mind, body, spirit at that point in time. Yeah, extremely well put. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. With your new book, you're addressing a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety of which at some point in life we all have had. And you wrote at one point and said, anxiety is not something innate to who we are. It is a learned habit that can be unlearned through the power of meditation. Okay, I'd like to unlearn. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would too. (laughs) When I read that statement, it was so powerful to me, Lodro. I I just sat there and went, 
wow, there was an empowering moment going, you don't have to feel that anxiety. You can bring in the emotions, but you don't have to live through it. So how do we, how do we unlearn? Yeah, it's great. I really appreciate you asking that. And also that thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm glad that this was somewhat impactful because going back to what we were talking about before, if our anxiety isn't innate to who we are, there must be something that is. And that is that sense of wholeness and goodness that we can discover within meditation. When we sort of get out of our own way, that's waiting to be discovered. That sense of, oh, in this moment, as I'm just sitting here breathing, I'm okay. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about basic goodness. It's like, oh, I'm okay as is. But that's not the experience. I wish, you know, like people can sort of visualize a bar graph here. Often what we have is like 95% anxiety, 5%, oh, I'm okay with myself, (laughs) right? And I do think that what we want to do through the practice of meditation is slowly invert those. So maybe it becomes 50-50 and then 60% we're okay with ourselves, 40% we're lost anxiety. But as I said in that short statement there, we need to unlearn this thing that feels it's so habitual that it feels like it's a part of us. It is not something that's a part of us. It's something that we've learned. So it's something that we can unlearn. As you talked about earlier, you use the example of like a baby or a child. They know that they just act unapologetically who they are. And yet we were children. And at some point people said, don't do that. Or don't be so loud or don't dress in this way or whatever it is. And we were gradually told to doubt ourselves. And this trap of doubt is what holds us back from experiencing this space of goodness. The way that this trap of doubt often manifests for many of us is a sense of anxiety. What if this happens? What if that happens? Then I'm not going to be okay. So I share a story in there of a meditation student I was working with who um, really was like, she went to the doctor and the doctor said, you're going to be anxious for the rest of your life. And whether that was exactly what he said or not, I do not know. That's what she told me. And I was like, that is, she's like, I've been diagnosed. I'm going to be anxious for the rest of my life. And I was like, how does he know that? I would say you could struggle with anxiety and you could struggle with stressful things coming up in your life over the course of your life. That makes sense. But to say that you are going to be anxious, that is a choice that you make. So the idea of taking back your mind, it's surprisingly simple. And again, like all the other things from the meditation umbrella, not particularly easy. The simple part is if I asked you, would you rather be happy and relaxed or would you rather be stressed out and anxious? Which would you choose? Definitely. I want to be happy and relaxed (laughs) every day, all day. Not surprisingly, this question has a hundred percent success rate for that particular answer. Right. So in that moment, you just chose that over anxiety. Right. I chose that mindset. And that's exactly it. Like how much, how many times over the course of a day could we start to make that choice as opposed to the habitual choice of, well, but this thing Mm -hmm. at work might happen, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just this, there's always going to be something that could give us anxiety. Maybe I should step back for a second and define what I mean here. So stress is a part of life. Uh, It's a bit of a bummer uh, to say that, but it is true that, you know, there's going to be money issues and people aren't going to call us back and that might stress us out and things like that. But then the anxiety is the part of the mind that says, why aren't they calling you back? Do they not like you anymore? Do they find out something about you? Did someone say something to them that now makes them think that they shouldn't be friends with you? Is that what's going? And of course, you know, like 99% of the time, that's not the case. They're busy. Their kid just got out of the shower and is yelling about something. Like we don't know what's going on, why they're not getting back to us. So it's, there's often things that we don't know, but we start to fill in the gaps with our mind because the mind is a problem solving device. And it then starts to hold us in a state of anxiety. So there's the stressful trigger that comes up. And then there's that choice of, do I want to go down the rabbit hole and make this anxiety or not? That's the thing we can unlearn. We can't unlearn stressful responses, unfortunately, to the best of my knowledge. Like if, you know, someone came knocking on my door and say, hey, you know, your roof is caving in, that would be stressful for me. I don't know how to not make that stressful for me. But the idea of, you know, how much of my mental energy am I going to give over to that day in, day out? That's the interesting thing. That's the part that actually says, oh, it's up to me how much I want to exert my time, my energy in that regard. Mm -hmm. There's no one that's sitting here saying you should feel stressed out about this every day until it's fixed other than me.
What if it was possible to have local fresh groceries delivered right to your door? Think of all the free time you'd have. Well, Instacart gives unlimited grocery delivery for one low monthly fee. Forgot that special ingredient in your favorite dish? Instacart can deliver it to your front door in as fast as one hour. You can shop multiple stores, see deals in your area, and save time and money. I've been using Instacart for over three years. I started using them in Arizona, and I'm using them here in Florida. I love the time-saving convenience. They pick the freshest products, and they keep my eggs safe, too. To receive your first delivery free, follow the link in the show notes so that Instacart knows that we sent you and to help support the show. Instacart, never step foot in a grocery store again. Right. And do you feel that fear goes hand in hand with anxiety? No, it's interesting. I think fear is a natural response to stressful situations. But there's also a therapist friend of mine has a great acronym around this. It's probably more common than I think. Fear being false evidence appearing real. Fear, there's sort of like if there's a a bear across the street from me and there's a fear response that makes sense. But more often than not, the fear that I'm feeling is something that I have created based on false evidence, things that are not currently occurring. But it feels real to me because it's possible in my mind. And that's where it's no longer helpful. So I think fear is an interesting one because there could be an immediate danger, in which case there's fear and that makes sense. But a lot of the times when we feel fear, it is because we have generated stories about something that could possibly happen that is not actually necessarily real. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about like over time, over life, like it it seems like in our society, it's very fear-based and fear-driven and reactory to a lot of things. How can we then work on, or what suggestion would you give to work on to go, okay, if if everything has always suddenly, you know, you drop something and you're anxious and, and there's that anxiety, everything has gone to that heightened sensitivity. How do you deprogram that? Yeah. So <laughs> this is the seventh book I've written and there's a bit of a running bit in there where it's like, okay, I've written all these books. I've said, Hey, do this shamatha thing that you and I talked about earlier, do the mindfulness of the breath thing. Now that you've gotten really good at meditation, you now know that you can acknowledge these stories, come back to the breath, that you have the freedom to do that. And that is the foundational practice. Like the reason I recommend it for people is because it is training us in letting go of the anxious stories, coming back into the present moment, just like lifting weights. The more we do that, the stronger the muscle becomes And here's the mental muscle of realizing we don't have to chase after every anxiety producing story that comes up. We can come back into the present. But even though that is the foundation, I'm now also going to reveal some of the things that I'm like, and, and I feel this is a big and (laughs) right. all these other waking hours of our day that we're not meditating and our mind goes wild. So we got to work with the mind in the post meditation experience too, i.e. the other waking hours of the day. So To answer your question more directly, one thing I often recommend for people, particularly when we are in that heightened physical state, is to take three deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, which calms the nervous system. This could take 30 seconds, but in that 30 seconds, the mind is no longer fixated on that current story that is holding us in that physical stress uh, response mode. So three, seven times of that. Another thing I think is helpful before we get to that physical response, maybe the shoulders are starting to tense up and we notice that, but we're playing out the same story over and over and over again in our head. After the 50th time, we can ask ourselves a question like, is this useful? Is this helpful? More often than not, the answer that comes back from inside of us is no, it is not. Maybe the first time you said, oh, I want to make sure I tell them this. Maybe that was helpful. After the 50th time of strategizing how this conversation is going to go, knowing full well that it's not going to go that way because conversations never go the way that we actually think they will. It's no longer helpful. Then why am I doing it? We're more likely to be able to give up the ghost on that continuous hamster wheel of a story that we've been on. If we just ask ourselves gentle questions to become more inquisitive about the experience. I love that. So that takes me into this question, which also I felt to be very powerful. And I work with this a lot with clients is you talk about the Buddhist philosophy of you are not your job. Please help describe that more. Because again, that's something that I feel was society driven that this is what you do. This is who you are. This is your title. 
when people like yourself and like me, we do a lot of things. Like there is just no way to give us one title. I mean, truly, I probably could have spent a half an hour on a biography for you because of all the amazing things that you've done and created. So how does that philosophy work to help people to almost free them from who they think they are or what they've been told that they are? Yeah. So there was a time a million years ago when the woman I was dating, who's now my wife and I, we locked ourselves in a cabin for a period of time, a couple months. And both of us were sort of evaluating our work and things like that. And there is this moment where I took all these eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. And I did what you just mentioned. I wrote down everything that I did. And at that time there was even more activity. And I, you know, wrote for this magazine and I put that up on the wall, wrote for this sort of thing, put that on the wall. And I started just moving them around, looking at it. I said, what's the through line? What's meaningful? And so the short answer to what I do for a living is that I make meditation accessible or as, as accessible as I possibly can. That's what I do. These days, I might even go so far as say make Buddhist meditation because it's so specifically in the Buddhist realm. But it's the same idea. It hasn't changed in, in these many years. And everything that then was on that wall that did not go in, it felt in conflict with or apart from that main intention ended up being wrapped up in the next few months. And I ended up focusing more and more on the intention of making meditation as accessible as possible. And as you said, there's books and there's retreats and there's online courses and there's consulting for apps and, you know, the network of meditation studios I found it took up, you know, five years of my time and all these sorts of things that came out of that. But, you know, there's really, it's always been that intention has led through. So I think the idea of us not being our particular job title is helpful because let's pretend that we have a real particular goal. And it's not that we don't want to discourage anyone from having goals, but I'm going to make a distinction between goals and intentions and aspirations, intention and aspiration being used interchangeably here. And I think it might be helpful. But if I said my goal was to, let's make up a number, sell 300,000 copies of my new book. Either I sell 300,000 copies of my new book and I break my back and I spend years and years to do it. And I hit that goal, at which case I go, I bet I could do 400 because that's just how the mind works. Or I don't get it. And I feel really bad about myself. Gosh, I used to be able to sell so many more books than I do now. Like I'm holding myself in a very arbitrary, if I hit this goal, then I'm good. And then I want something else or I don't hit it and I'm bad. Another way of looking at it, and this is how I do look at the books and particularly this most recent one is I hope this book helps people. It's very open-ended, I realize, but it means every time I get an email from someone saying, hey, I'm super stressed out. This book actually really helped me work with my mind. So I want, I'm not so overwhelmed by anxiety. That's huge for me because then it means that I'm actually fulfilling the intention that I set for the work. So I think to think of our work, not as a specific job title or a specific goal, but to have a sense of who do I want to be? Not just what do I want to do, but who do I want to be? And how do I want to manifest the qualities I already have inside me to be of the most benefit to myself and others? That is so important. And I hope that everyone stops, rewinds, and re-listens to that part like 10 times. Because if we could just take that one snippet and give it to all of society, could you imagine the world that we would live in? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's an old story and I'll sort of flash forward to the punchline of it. But in the Buddhist tradition, there's the story of a local governor seeking out a wise monk and the wise monk basically saying, you know, only do good things, don't do bad things. The governor says, what? I knew this when I was six years old, you know, like this, give me better advice than this. And the wise monk says, yes, the six-year-old knows it, but the 60-year-old finds it still very hard to do. And I think we sort of know this. And at the same time, it's so hard for us to keep our mind attuned to the qualities that we want to live in line with, as opposed to the things we feel like I got to get done today. It's so true. Do you think that monks and in the Tibetan world, do they ever feel stressed? Yeah, I think it's just different stressors. I I think, you know, we can, even my move from New York City to upstate New York, it's, it's less, so it's a simpler lifestyle, which is really helpful for me. There's not as many sort of stressors in my face as there was in the city. And yet there's a whole other set of problems, right? Like we had trees fall down in the storm and we had to like deal with all of that. So I think it's it's similar. I think it's like 
even if we retreat, so to speak, from the conventional societal life, there's still a society within a monastery or a nunnery that there's still people and they're still going to annoy us. And the issues are just different. You know, like this person serves food so slowly and I'm hungry all the time. Why are they always like this? You know, it's sort of like, it's just a different set of issues that can cause us stress. So it's, we could do any number of things. We could become monastic or we could stay a householder. We could simplify our life to our heart's content, but there's still going to be things that cause us stress because stress is part of life. So it's really, no matter where we are and what we do, we have to learn to work with our mind. Right. It all comes back to the mindfulness. And I love what you've said throughout that it's kind of like eat, pray, love. You don't have to go to Tibet to find yourself because you are right here. You actually just have to go inside and take a minute or a few hours. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, I think the idea of I will never get to be that person because I don't get to be a monk or I don't get to simplify my life. It's like our mind is our mind. It's really up to us as to whether we decide to work with it or not. So, Lodro, you have written seven books in, is it 10 years now or is it 11? Yeah, 10 years. How do you do that? I'm sure there are tons of people that are listening who maybe aspire to be a writer. I know I would love to do that. How does that flow for you? Sure. I mean, I always think of the old Raymond Chandler quote uh, where he said that every morning he would get up and throw up onto his typewriter and every afternoon he would clean it up. And I think there's something about that. I mean, he, incredible amount, incredible work, but the idea of allowing ourselves to just flow with what is currently coming up for us without judgment. So it's not actually different. I think the meditation practice really helps prepare the mind for creativity. And there's you know, probably all sorts of science and research pointing at these days, but really basically, like if we are able to access our own wisdom, access our own sense of wholeness, then we are less likely to write a sentence and say, this is a dumb sentence. I've just got to go back over the same sentence 12 times. We have to allow ourselves the opportunity to throw up onto the typewriter, so to speak, to actually just be open to just sort of writing what we know. I I think that's the thing as well, that I think many of us um, might want to write a book, but then we don't know exactly like, well, I heard this thing and I'm going to compile all of the things I've heard as opposed to actually saying, I'm going to write from my experience of these things. And that's a big distinction. I I mean, at this point, I also lead mindfulness teacher trainings. And that's the thing I often tell people is like, you don't want to go into a talk and have your best compilation of other people's quotes. You want to have practice to the extent that you really understand it deeply and can speak from your own experience. I think the same thing goes for writing. We have to speak from our own experience, our own inner translation of the things that we've learned and share from what we have to offer with the heart of wanting to be of benefit, as opposed to making it about us or talking about how we're still processing things, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. Is there one moment in your life that you are most proud of, that you are most, when you think about it, you just go, wow, that was amazing? Um, shoot. It's a really interesting question. You know, I would say one thing that I'm still working on is actually taking the time to celebrate some of the good things that, um, are done. Like I often will like conclude a five month cycle of a boot. Like I literally just did this this month. I conclude a five month cycle with a hundred people from around the world doing really deep Buddhist work. And then I'll say, okay, and now we're launching into the next thing next week. <laughs> you know, so I'm still learning to celebrate these things more myself. The one that came to mind immediately, maybe because we just celebrated our anniversary, was indeed my wedding itself. Because, you know, I, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, we're always going to be good together forever. I think we have a very good chance. But, you know, no matter where the rest of this relationship goes, there have been so many years of deep care and seeking to understand one another and like slowing down long enough in our life to actually take the time to do that well, which I I think is sort of uh, beautiful and rare. So I'm very proud of like the relationship that's been cultivated, but really I think there's this tipping point in us getting up in front of other people and saying, yes, we're going to keep doing this for the rest of our life. That was the wedding itself. Sometimes people are like, Ooh, do I have to become Buddhist? You know? And the answer is of course, no, you don't have to become Buddhist to meditate. That's not, what you need to do, but sometimes people really want to. And my analogy is exactly this. It's like, you know, yes, you could go through a ceremony and 
get up in front of people and say, I'm Buddhist, or you could just be Buddhist for the rest of your life in your own heart. In the same way that my aunt very much based on her own life experience was like, why do you need to get married? Me and my partner were together for 50 years before he passed. Like, you know, he's, we, we didn't have to do that, but there was something profound for um, my wife and I to actually get up in front of people and to proudly proclaim that the things that we had sort of done well and cultivated up to that point, we were dedicating ourselves to in earnest for the rest of our life. And I, I think that actually was a pivotal moment for us to, um, in whatever tumult that has arisen in other in the years since, like we have been able to continue the things that we vowed to do. I'm very proud of that. I think that is a beautiful way to describe two people getting married. <laughs> and that is such a beautiful way to describe that. Thank you for that. So we've gotten to the point of the show, Lodro, where I ask this one question. Are you ready for it? Sure. What is one thing that no one knows about you? No one? No one. Great question. That, (laughs) since we're on the theme of meditation, there are many times throughout the day that there's sort of a residual thing that happens in meditation for me uh, at this point where I will be mid email and I will raise my gaze and this is, you're seeing me where I work right now and I will just pause and let the mind rest. And I think these are perhaps the most profound moments of meditation. It's like the, these, it's just sort of this intentional gap that is left in the day for me to just be open and then I'll reenter my work, but it's starting to happen more naturally at this point in, in my particular path. And I think, you know, if, if there is a learning that could come from this for others, it is that sense to leave, you know, there's so many transitional moments in our day. I mean, that's a weird example because I was mid email, but like you get off the phone with someone or a meeting ends, or we're getting into an elevator. Could we learn to just be with ourselves in little moments of the day and actually enjoy those? And I, I think that's something that I absolutely have not talked to other people about, but it has become really a, a highlight of every day. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. It, I think that's, again, something else that's super important to think about. Like, even when people are at a red light, I was talking with someone, I go, do you remember the days you'd be sitting at a red light and someone would wave to you and be like, hey, I'm like, and now people are just always on their phone. They're always doing, 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 and they're not just being. And out of everything that you've said today, I think that that is something that we can all truly learn how to do now in baby steps. Doesn't have to happen all overnight, but you've given a lot of wonderful Um, advice and insights on to how to do that to make our lives better, more grounded and clear. And I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Lodra, will you share with our listeners, where's the best way that they can get in contact and reach out to you? Sure. Nice thing about a name like Lodra Rinsler is that you get to own the domain name. So people can reach out to me through my website and I always get back to them. And then of course, Instagram is probably where I, and social media I post most and people can connect with me there at Lodra Rinsler. And then I would say after that, maybe comes Facebook and same thing. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and your insights with us today and your incredible energies. I'm so honored. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, as we say, until next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Empowered Within with Jennifer Pilates. Your feedback is important. It helps me to connect with you and gives me insight into who you are and what you're enjoying about the show. For today's show notes and discount codes from today's sponsors, head over to jenniferpilates.com. Until next time, may you live an empowered life from within.